Welcome to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military, and specialty areas. We address the question, what is military psychology, and answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. The Intro to Military Psychology podcast is an official podcast by the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association. It does not represent the position of the American Psychological Association or any of its other divisions or subunits. The contents, views, or opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Uniformed Service University, Department of the Army, Navy, or the Air Force. Hello. Welcome back to Intro to Mealside Podcast. I'm Keen, and with me, I have Ethan. Hey. And today we're joined by two very, very, very good speakers that we have today, uh, Dr. Surface, Dr. Eric Surface, and also Dr. Maurice Seipos. So welcome to our podcast, both of you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. And today we'll be focusing on learning more about applied psychology in the military context. And before this, we already pre-gamed some really good conversations. So we're excited about today's podcast. So with that said, if you don't mind, Dr. Surface, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Kane. Well, my name is Eric Surface, as, as we just alluded to, but I'm the past president or the current past president of the Society for Military Psychology, which I guess is why you're having me here today. <laughs> Partially one of the reasons, yep. By definition, that means I was the president last year, right? So I'm an industrial and organizational psychologist by training and I've worked with the military ever since about 1997, I think is the exact date. I was uh, got my PhD in industrial and organizational psychology from North Carolina State University. My dissertation was actually on modeling training performance in the Special Forces Qualification Course. Wow. So my focus is on learning and development and performance and how you measure that and how you use it to improve your training processes and capability at the individual team and organizational level. How I got involved in military psychology was I was looking for a, I was doing an internship with Caterpillar, and then there was an opportunity to go and interview for a consortium research fellow position with the Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences, working out of the Fort Bragg field office. And for any of you who aren't familiar with ARI, they do great research related to personnel and organizational issues in the Army. You know, things like selection and assignment, teams, leadership, organizational effectiveness, all of those things are main topics that they do. And they've been working with the consortium of universities of the metropolitan D.C. area for, I don't know, it must program must have been around 30 something years by now. Mm-hmm. It was actually started by a fellow of Division 19 who's since passed away, Bob Ruskin. And it provides not just to ARI, but to other DOD organizations, the opportunity for graduate students and 
professors to work for places like the Army Research Institute. And so they have a consortium research fellow position, which is for graduate students. And so when I was working on my PhD at NC State, I became a consortium research fellow supporting special forces down at Fort Bragg. So I got to work with Special Forces Assessment and Selection, Special Forces Q course. I got to work with USASOC. I did command climate surveys. I did feedback with senior leaders, did a lot of projects for them, you know, wow, working on all kinds of neat stuff. And then when I finished, I got a postdoc, which is very unusual in IO to have a, a postdoc. It's very common and I think required in clinical psychology to, to have those experiences. But in IO, it's very atypical. And so I did a postdoc and with the same group down at Fort Bragg, and they assigned me to Special Operation Forces Language Office. And so I started working with language training, testing. Then it got into kind of language culture and regional expertise. And I eventually built that into, had a consulting business and started doing consulting in that area with SOCOM and, you know, yeah. other things just sort of to, to come about that. So I've been a basically a kind of an atypical career with military psychology. I've, I've never served in uniform. I've never been a civilian, DOD civilian. I've always been a contractor. And so I, I work for my own company right now, and we're focused on providing solutions and software around the learning, measurement, and analytics area. But as an incredible yeah. background, <laughs> Dr. Surface, I, you know, and one of the things that we're trying to do with this podcast is really bring light to students who aren't clinically focused, maybe, or they hope their career isn't all clinical work. And we want to talk about and have guests on who aren't uniformed providers in the DOD. So, you know, really excited to have you. You have a wealth of knowledge that I think is going to be very valuable to some of our listeners. So thanks for being here. And we'll get on more into some of those topics. But I want to switch now to Dr. Maurice Sipos. He is currently an Army psychologist at the rank of Colonel, I believe. And thank you for coming and joining us on this episode as well. Could you introduce yourself and some of your background for us? Sure. Thanks. Um, hopefully my background will be as interesting as, uh, as Eric's. <laughs> so unlike Eric, I've spent my entire career in uniform. So I, you know, I actually went to college on an ROTC scholarship to Lehigh University. And one of the things that you can do is get an educational delay, a deferment mm -hmm. to go on and get a, a graduate degree. And so I applied and was uh, allowed to go on for my doctorate in psychology and so I stayed on at Lehigh University and completed my degree in experimental psychology. And at the time, it was right as, you know, some of the changes were happening in some of the de degree programs. So I was more on the behavioral neuroscience side mm -hmm. before that degree existed there. So now they've got a full program in biological sciences and behavioral neurosciences. And so at Lehigh, I studied basically the neuroanatomy of aggression and uh, reproductive behaviors in animal model and in mice models. And so from there, when I graduated from Lehigh, I joined the Army as a captain, came on active duty, and I was told, well, that's great that you studied those things, but now you're going to study things that the Army is interested in. And I saw, so I thought, wow, <laughs> uh, this is going to be really interesting. I've, I've started publishing and, you know, pheromonal communication and neuroanatomy of different you know, animal behaviors, and now I've got to study something completely different. So what's important to remember when you come into the Army or into the military in any 
capacity, whether it be the Air Force or the Navy, is that you're going to apply the, the skills that you learned in graduate school to questions that are of interest to your employer, right? So it means you're, you're potentially going to learn a new set of tricks. You're going to learn a new set of tools. You're going to learn potentially new analyses, and you get to keep on learning and developing yourself. Mm-hmm. So when I came into the Army, I went to Walter Reed Army Institute of Research which if any of your you know, listeners are interested, it's a great place where you can do a variety of research, psychology research across all kinds of domains. So it would be certainly something that I would encourage you to look at. Where is that located, Maurice? That's located in Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay. And I can talk more about some of the other organizations where you can do uh, research, whether in uniform or as a DOD civilian, as a contractor. You know, there are a variety of, of ways you can do that. So I came in and basically started looking at different drugs that could be used as uh, prophylaxis against chemical warfare nerve agents. So medical drug development, if you want to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And so I got to do that work using mouse models, using rats, and then working also with uh, non-human primates. So it was, a, it was really kind of fun. And then from there, I did some work looking at uh, biological agents and how you know different vaccines could help prevent some of the behavioral degradation that you would see in non-human primates. Then I bumped around from there, went to the Medical Research Institute of Chemical Defense, which is north of Baltimore by about 20 miles in uh, Edgewood, Maryland, at Aberdeen Proving Ground at the Edgewood Arsenal. And there my focus was looking at low-dose chemical warfare nerve agents, the effects of those agents on behavior. Again, it was about behavioral analysis. So it was at the time where we were starting to look at Gulf War syndrome and, and some of those sorts of things. Then, you know, from there, I... I went to the Army War College where I am now, but in a very different capacity. There was an organization called the Army Physical Fitness Research Institute. It was focused on health and well-being of senior leaders. And so I was in charge of a research protocol, was the deputy director for research. And so we studied everything from behavioral health issues to, you know, strength, fitness, body composition, you know, tons of different markers that we then used to help educate senior leaders about their own health and wellness so that they could return to the force and help improve the health and well-being of the people that they lead. So then, like any Army officer, when time comes for you to move, you move, right? So I went back to the chem defense world. From there, I got a phone call from my consultant at the time who said, hey, how do you like Germany? And I I said, well, I I love Germany. I grew up there as an Army brat. He said, great, it's settled. And I said, what's settled? He said, well, you're going to Germany next. That'll be your next assignment. You're going to go to the United States Army Medical Research Unit Europe, and you're going to command that little group. And then from there, you're going to go to to Afghanistan. So from there, I switched from animal research to looking more at human factors, looking at behavioral health and those sorts of things, leadership, organizational support, you know, those sorts of things. Deployed a couple of times, went to Afghanistan twice, leading mental health advisory team mission. We did one in the Horn of Africa and Djibouti. And so very different line of research from there. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I came to the War College as a student and then applied for the Army War College professor program and was accepted and I'm still here now. So that kind of stretches the line a little bit in terms of what research or applied psychologists can do. There are several of our colleagues that are in Division 19 that also teach at senior service college level. So 
Jeff Thomas, for example, is at the Eisenhower School down in D.C., and, and there are you know, several of my colleagues that are in the Department of Command Leadership and Management here at the War College that are also psychologists, social psychologists, industrial organizational psychologists, and, and so on. So in a nutshell, jack of all trades, master of none. So there you have it. Equally as impressive, Maurice. One of the questions that just popped to my mind as, as you were talking about your entrance into the Army Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Army has specific billets for clinical psychologists versus an applied psychologist or a research psychologist. Can you talk about those differences? I'm not familiar with them, actually, personally. Sure. There. When you think about psychologists, you know, my father thought about it this way, too. He thought that I said, Dad, I'm a psychologist. He says, OK, great. You know, when you retire from the Army, you can just come to in that time he was in San Antonio. You can just come to San Antonio and set up a practice. And I'm like, well, Dad, I'm a research psychologist. I don't actually counsel people. I don't do that. Right. So so we have a couple of different areas of specialty, if you want to think about them that way in the Army, as well as in the other services. So in the Army, we have clinical psychologists. They are in the health side of the medical service corps. And then we also have research psychologists, and they're, they're called areas of concentration. So for example, the research psychologists are 71 foxtrots. In addition, you have social workers that also are involved in the behavioral health care of our service members and their families. The Navy has a similar structure where they have the clinical side, but they also have research psychologists. They focus naturally on more of the types of things that the Navy would be interested in, mm -hmm. diving, you know, submarine. They also do personnel sorts of things as well. Air Force is, I think, a little bit different. There, In fact, I saw a really great article that Mike Matthews wrote gosh, it's been a few years now, where he kind of describes his almost 40 years of experience as a behavioral science officer in the Air Force. So I think the Air Force may categorize folks a little bit differently, but there are lots of different opportunities. And the easiest way to find out about them is to, well, to ask any of your chapter presidents to feed it up through the sack to any of us or pop it on Facebook, and we'll, we'll be happy to connect people with folks that do things that they're interested in doing. Yeah, we talked to Dr. Mark Stahl, and yeah. he also shared with us his experience working at different places like NASA and consultation and different agencies. So it was great. So really great snapshot about your experience and also your career so far. A question that I always ask our speaker is, at what point did you realize that military psychology is what you're interested in? And for Dr. Surface, for instance, you, know, you mentioned your internship you were doing, your dissertation was on assessment with the special forces community. So what made that decision for you uh, during your time when you were at graduate school? Yeah. How did you even find out about that? Yeah. It was just like very, very off. Like if nobody told me about military psychology, I would have done, known it. And, and I wonder if there is like a community in IO psychology where people are actively pursuing military psychology in that way. I think one of the, the things, and I, I think I was just in the right place at the right time, mm -hmm. to be honest, but the director of the field office, uh, ARI's field office down at Fort Bragg, Dr. Mike Sanders at the time, he was looking to get some help. And their primary means of getting some help on the cheap is using the consortium <laughs> research fellows program to get graduate students. So, you know, he reached out to North Carolina State University and my advisor was the person who mostly works on the personnel side. And so that's what he was looking for. And so I went and interviewed and got the position 
and just was lucky enough to get all kinds of neat projects from working with assessment and selection to working with the qualification course. And that's what I did my, my dissertation on was looking at all the measures that they take throughout the entire qualification course, all the phases mm-hmm. for all the different MOSs or jobs in special forces, and then kind of modeling that is I got to go out and observe a lot of training. I actually got to be a role player I don't know if if you're familiar with this or if our listeners are familiar with this, but Special Forces has a training, has a culmination exercise called Robin Sage, where they infill into the fictional country of Pineland, which is uh, in the the Piedmont of North Carolina, in an A-team, and then they meet up with the local group of gorillas called the G's. So the local group is the G's. Mm -hmm. And you go through like three weeks of different exercises that kind of basically simulate an unconditional warfare mission for special forces. I was fortunate enough to get to go out and be a role player in that. And I was out for about two weeks and got to do some really fun stuff. But one of the things, my role that I was given by the guy who was doing our group, because they usually have about 20 of them going at the same time, was I was given the role of being the upstart to the G chief, to the grant, to the chief of the rebels. So I was constantly, constantly pushing him and doing other stuff. You know, it was very interesting to watch this, but it was very impressive because even in the training situation, they had a simulated for the medics. Uh, there was a guy when they were infilling who got hyperthermia and I watched the medic treat him. It was very impressive. They sent, they had a a mannequin that they used to simulate a a minefield injury. And there was a guy, you know, out there treating him. And this was back around 2000, 2001. So there was not a whole lot of high tech, but those mannequins and what they were doing with them was very impressive. And so you start to think about all this data that these exercises and the classroom training and all these things generate. And and how do you operationalize that in ways that you can use it that's predictive of other things? And so that's what really got me interested in doing it and, and working on my dissertation. And at that point, I was just, I was hooked. And all my opportunities, you know, I did the post and I started working with language and culture and regional expertise. And they were like, wow, we really like this research. And, you know, how can we get more of it? And of course, ARI didn't really want to continue supporting them for various reasons. So I happened to have a company because I'm very entrepreneurial minded that I was doing work for, you know, on the side for companies like Caterpillar and IBM and, and stuff like that. And so they put it out as a contract and I bid on it. And so that's how I started to get into the contracting area. But one of the things that I would make a distinction, if you're thinking about this from a, a student perspective, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. You can work directly for someone like an ARI or DMDC, Defense Manpower Data Center, through the consortium. They use the consortium a lot. You can work for them through grants that your professor might have. And then there are contracts. There are lots of defense contractors out there that will do either research or applied research contracts or what I do. I do more operational analytics and measurement contracts that help people do the work that they need to get done and make better decisions around training and and exercises and things like that. So there's lots of different ways to put your skills to use in particular with data analysis and measurement and then interpreting that and, and helping folks see what the next path is. Yeah. Wow. Hey, Eric, as a graduate student, what was your involvement with APA? What was your involvement with Division 19? If you had any involvement with them at the time, did you know about this community beforehand? So that's a great question. 
so as an IO psychologist, there's not a whole, as a graduate student, there's not a whole lot, a lot of incentive to be an APA member, to be honest. And mm-hmm. PSYOP doesn't have a separate student organization per se. Mm-hmm. So it's more about being involved in your research group and your interest area. How I got involved in APA would be, is very honestly, it used to be to be a, become a member of PSYOP, you had to first be a member of either APA or APS. And so I had someone that I was close to say, oh, you should join APA. So I joined APA. And then I came to Division 19 as an EC, or early career psychologist as opposed to a graduate student. So mm. that was really how I got interested in APA. I guess I can blame PSYOP for getting me getting me into all this trouble. And you can blame them, too, for having me, uh, you know, as uh, as president and past president of Division 19. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with PSYOP, PSYOP is a Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. It's a separate community for folks interested in that career field. Eric, did you want to speak more to PSYOP or what they do? I was going to say it's Division 14 of APA, and I think if you are an industrial organizational psychologist, that is your primary home. But if you do work with the military, that you can also have a home with Division 19 with us, because I think there's tremendous amount of overlap. And one of the things I want us to kind of get on touch on, and, and Maurice, I think, can say more about this, too, is, you know, this kind of divide, because we've been talking about applied psychology a lot. And, you know, when you think about APA, they talk about practice. Well, when they talk about practice, they really mean clinical practice mm-hmm. or healthcare psychology practice. But, you know, we talk about it. And there's also this distinction between healthcare and what APA calls general applied psychology, which I, I think is kind of funny because if you look at Anastasi's book or some other sources, you know, clinical psychology is applied psychology too, right? You can do research, you can practice, and you can be an advocate in any subdomain of psychology. So it's just kind of a weird distinction that we try to put people in boxes, but they don't really fit so much. It's been my, it's yeah. been my experience in particular for military psychologists that we do, regardless of your specialty, that we do a lot of also practice and research. I've published almost 30 articles and done over 100 conference presentations, but I'm primarily a practitioner, right? So, and I think Maurice can talk, has a similar experience, which he he can talk about too, but I I think that's a distinction that folks need to know about and understand is that your career in military psychology at points may be practice or more practice, but there's always opportunities to do research and points that may be more research, but there's always opportunities to put that into practice. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that one of the interesting things about military psychology is, let's just take the Army, for example, research psychology, the community, research psychology community. There may be 40 people in the area of concentration. It goes up, it goes down, but we're about 40 people now. And within those 40 people, we have people that are studying so many other, you know, sub-disciplines, right? So, for example, when I first came in, the types of research I was doing would push me more in the direction of the Society for Neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And so the conference that I would go to would be, would be the Society for Neuroscience. There are others where their research is, would more naturally fall into APA, the folks that are doing some of the work that I did when I was in Germany and when I was at Walter Reed the, the second time looking at more soldier health and well-being, they're more typically the types of folks that you would see join APA and Division 19. And so for me, I think when I first joined Division 19, 
gosh, it was a while back, but then I was doing more of the Society for Neuroscience stuff. And I was just like, well, why do I need to join two professional memberships? The military is not going to reimburse me for this stuff. I didn't mm-hmm. have the capital to be putting out money for multiple you know, organizations. So I picked the one that suited me the most. Sure. And I think a lot of people end up doing that, right? But eventually I started doing more and more work that fell in the lines of what we typically think about the types of research that Division 19 does, you know, soldier deployment, clinical, behavioral health focus, those sorts of things, some leadership stuff. And so that's when I became an APA member again and actively joined Division 19 and stayed a member of Division 19. The thing that I think is probably the thing that keeps me in Division 19 is the collaborative nature of what we do. There are people that do research. The research is informed by clinical practice and the products of the research then in turn go back and often feed clinical practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got research teams that include social workers, clinical psychologists, research psychologists. And so you've really got sort of this multidisciplinary approach that allows you to look at a huge, huge breadth of topics, often in the very same survey that you're using if you're doing survey research of soldiers. And so you can pull all of that and just have a, just a great collaborative experience. And like I said, I think that's probably what has kept me a member of Division 19 is just the ability to work with some great people, some great teams. I 100% agree with you, Maurice, on that. And I, and I think the, the clear connection in the military context between research and practice and impact is one of the things that it really excites me and keeps me here is because it's very rare that organizations let you do the level of research that you do in DOD and then get to put it immediately into practice and see the outcome of it. I'll give you one example from my work personally is back in the 2005, 6, 7 timeframe, we did a number of studies for the, the Special Operation Forces Language Office looking at proficiency assessment for foreign language and also the proficiency pay policy. So at the time, it was foreign language proficiency pay. And we did the research to support a lot of recommendations that they then went to the services with because the service controls foreign language proficiency pay, which is now switched from a pay to a bonus currently. And so they lobbied for several years to get these changes made. And then after the changes were made, they were done in a couple of the services by including the Army and Navy by about 2011. The guy who we did the work for came back to me and says, so now can we study if they were effective? And I'm like, no, we need a few more years of data. So come back to me when you have at least four more years of data on this. And so in 2015 or 16, we pulled the data through 15 and we used, I don't want to get too geeky here, but we used regression discontinuity analysis and some different types of multi-level modeling to demonstrate the impact of those changes on individual proficiency level and organizational capability. And they were all as projected. It was great. I mean, so that's one of those things where you can see, look, I studied a problem. I gave some recommendations. I actually convinced some people to put to go out and lobby to have those changed. They did all the hard work. I just, I did the easy work, but they did all the hard work of negotiating that with the services. And then I got to study it to see if it worked. So that's action research at its best right there. Full circle. And we love when the geekiness comes out, Eric. Yeah. So continue <laughs> to bring the geekiness, please. <laughs> yeah. one, one of the things I do want to circle back on that Eric touched on a little bit before was the idea that universities, if your professor at a university is getting funding from the Department of Defense or Veterans Affairs to do research, 
That's huge. I mean, we have pretty big budgets that are run out of places like the Medical Research and Development Command over in Fort Detrick that just have, you know, millions of dollars that go to universities for research that's focused on things like psychological health and resilience. And so there are a lot of people that get funding. Ideally, we'd like to have some of those folks join our ranks as Division 19 members because they may not be uniforms, they may be in you know, academic environments, but they study the military and they study the things that are, that are important to service members and their families. And so for those reasons, that's a great place to learn more about military psychology and how you're going to end up getting involved. You know, for me, it was it was almost natural. I mean, I, I grew up in a military environment. I left high school at 17 years old, got an ROTC scholarship, signed my contract when I got to Lehigh. And, and so I knew I was going to be in the military. And so I decided I was going to stay in and, until I didn't like it anymore. So here yeah. I am almost 30 <laughs> years later, and I'm still in uniform and I'm still enjoying what I do. Yeah, that's really good. I think at this point, it's very important for the audience to know that both of you consider yourself as military psychologists, but you have never sat in a room with a client and do psychotherapy. No, no one wants me to sit in a room with someone else and try to <laughs> attempt any sort of therapy or healthcare or anything that, you know, the closest I've ever come is giving feedback on command climate results and organizational yeah. effectiveness and uh, doing a little bit of coaching. Nobody wants me to do anything more than that. Right. And same thing for me. I've never done any clinical work. I will say that some of my research has informed clinical practice, possibly, because it, some of it has a behavioral health focus to it. And some of the findings from those studies have helped informed senior leaders in combat environments and garrison environments, those sorts of things in terms of the health and well-being of their force. But I've never sat with a client one-on-one and and try to counsel them uh, yeah. in those ways. I don't know that I'm the guy for that. <laughs> so I like that reminder, Keen. I, I think it's an important one. And for the listeners who might be following this podcast, many of whom might be clinically oriented, or, or many of whom might not at all really know a whole lot about psychology or the military. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be really important to bring you know, greater awareness to the context of what we're talking about here. We're talking about a lot of topics. We're talking about practice, engagement with leadership development. We're talking about making recommendations to command and military organizations on the way they operate and how to do that more effectively and efficiently. The purpose of this meeting today and in this episode is really applied psychology. And we haven't really given a title to that or a definition to that. So we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, but for the listeners who don't know what that is, what general applied psychology is, can we just get like a brief little definition for that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Ethan, before we jump there, I just want to point one thing out. Um, Although Eric and I, neither of us have done clinical practice, I think it's also important to highlight that there are clinicians who do see patients and who also engage in research. Oh, yeah. It's an important component, and I think it's important to highlight that just because we haven't done it, it doesn't mean that there aren't people that do both. And there's some great Division 19 members who are clinicians who do some phenomenal research and translate that back into practice. So um, I just wanted to highlight that point. And I agree, Maurice, and I think that's a really important point because I think sometimes we have this false dichotomy between researchers and practitioners of any ilk 
in psychology. And I think there are people who, you know, do both, who do one or the other. And, you know, but we all contribute to the greater good. And and one of the things that I, I think is really amazing about Division 19 and its members, and I, I'm constantly impressed every time I talk to people about what they're doing, is just how they're using their training as psychologists, whether or not they're primarily focused on healthcare, whether or not they're primarily a practitioner or a researcher or whatever, how they're using their training and their skill set to make a difference for individuals, organizations, teams, you know, families. I mean, there's lots of different ways to contribute as a military psychologist. And so I think one of the things that this podcast is a great opportunity to do is to let people know, look, there's a lot of variability. There's a lot of ways you can play in the military context. You can work in healthcare with service members, veterans, and their families. You can work with research if you primarily in a university setting, if you want to research on topics that are interesting to DOD. You can do it as a contractor like myself and help people operationally solve problems with data, you know, which is basically what I try to do is I think about an application of psychological principles as a problem solving tool. What's, you know, and I just happen to focus on the capability side of the equation. But, you know, I think there's just so many ways. And I think sometimes we try to put everybody in boxes so the world makes sense to us. And I think the one box that we all fit into is we all care about the military, its members, its veterans, their families, and the mission, right? That's the thing that holds us all together. All the other boxes are not important at all. Yeah. And I feel like those boxes begin in graduate school. I mean, the difference between PhD programs and PsyD programs, you know, what lab you join and what school you go to is is really the beginning of that. Is there a benefit to participating, you know, perpetuating that divide? I mean, why has that been such a strong divide? Do we know? (laughs) I think oftentimes that you're in different parts of an organization, right? The clinical programs don't necessarily reside in the same place as the biological sciences department Mm -hmm. if if you happen to have both in a university, right? So I think those stovepipes are part of the issue unless you're in a program that really does work to, you know, kind of cross those divides and to be more collaborative and multidisciplinary in their approach. You know, so I think that's part of it is you're just so focused in on the things that you need to study in order to, you know, function as the professional that you're aspiring to be, that you don't necessarily see outside the walls of your organization and your discipline. I think I agree with you because I actually got a terminal master's degree before I went back for my PhD. And I have a a master's in psychology with a concentration in IO. And I remember the first year of coursework there. I was taking classes with everybody, with folks who were focused on school psychology, cognitive psychology, developmental psychology. But then as we got into the second year, the close classes focused more on the the content domain. And I think that's part of the, the thing. As you get further along in your education, you become more and more focused. And even when I was working on my PhD, I took classes that folks and other folks in IO didn't because of my interest in learning and performance. I went over and took classes in the adult education department to get a concentration over there. So I think part of it is the nature of training becoming more specialized. But also there's a lot of groups that push us to segment ourselves. So I think there may be a little bit of this 
in-group, out-group thing, psychology thing going on just because we're made to identify with different groups. And, you know, we don't really put ourselves in positions because it takes, like you said, it takes additional resources and time to be the member of multiple professional organizations and energy to interact with folks that aren't focused on the exact same thing that you are. So I think there's just some natural barriers to doing it, but they can be overcome. And I think, again, Division 19 is a great place because the commonality is we share a common mission with a common you know, context and population of folks that we care about. Yeah. I also want to say that military psychology is very hard to define. You can be a neuropsychologist and be a military psychologist. You can be an IO psychologist and be a, a military psychologist. And like Ethan was saying, in the way that we're being trained, you get into a clinical psychology program, you are a clinical psychologist. But military psychology or being a military psychologist add a component to it that's like beyond the expertise that you're in. And I think it's hard you know, for that reason. And, and that's why, you know, my question really, young, you know, it's just kind of highlighting that. You can be a military psychologist and not be in a room and see patients because I think that's a very common perception among students. You know, I want to say that, oh, if you're going to be a military psychologist, then that means you might be working with uh, combat trauma or suicide prevention and that sort of work. Yeah, that's interesting, Keen. It's a conversation to think about, particularly with the student chapters, right? How many of the student chapters are focused on clinical and have room within them for, you know, applied psychologists? Yeah. And so that's something that I know we're going to talk more about to see how do we broaden that and to start maybe breaking down some of those stovepipes and barriers that we were just talking about and say, hey, there's more to psychology than just clinical practice or just applied psychology. It's a blending of all those things. And that collaborative spirit and energy is really what has attracted me to do the types of things that I do. And so, you know, I think it's important to do that. And I don't know, maybe 15 minutes ago, you asked, okay, would one of you guys please define (laughs) what you mean by applied psychology? So I'm going to let, you know, Eric do that. (laughs) (laughs) So in the broader sense, and this is Eric's definition of it, it, it's basically applying psychological principles and methods and, and research to solve problems in the real world that impact people, groups, and organizations. And again, I think clinical psychologist is applied psychology. It's just that we could like to create these artificial distinctions. And, And again, that doesn't mean that you're not doing research if you're an applied psychologist. It just means the nature of the research that you're doing has an application in the real world to people, yeah. groups, or organization. I think it's a really powerful set of tools that you get taught in graduate school in terms of methods that you can use to measure research design, you know, even thinking about it from the standpoint of a clinician, you know, so you all are taught to use tests and interpret tests and to make recommendations off the diagnoses and recommendations off of tests. And that's perfectly, that's what we do when we look at organizations. I mean, I collect a lot of data from a lot of different sources and, you know, just the same way a clinician would look at the tests, they would look at the interviews that they've had with the patient and maybe other folks to develop a diagnosis. I mean, we would do the same thing if we're looking at organizational problems or team problems. So I think the methods are very similar at a certain level and they imply a certain skill set. And it's really the understanding of human behavior and the methods that which we study and measure that that really define us as applied psychologists as opposed to being some other discipline, in my opinion. But problem focus is a big part of it. I agree with you completely, Eric. And 
I love the example or the analogy of having a toolkit that you're going to take with you to study, you know, whatever the issue is that you're studying, whether it be about your client and how you're going to diagnose them, an organization, what's going on in terms of, of the organization itself that you might be able to use to improve it. So applied psychology is very, very broad, right? And it covers all kinds of things that military psychology in general is focused on the military is in, you know, loves to, for us to study. So, I mean, we're looking at everything from testing and selection. We're looking at measuring and managing performance. We're looking at leadership. We're looking at how teams work together. We're looking at health. We're looking at feedback, productive, counterproductive behaviors, diversity, inclusion. We're looking at culture, Mm -hmm. climate, organizational behavior. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of the things that are relevant to the military and that psychologists have the tools in their toolkit to study. Okay. And so that's what I think is really important. Uh, That idea, Eric, that you brought is that as psychologists, we're trained to help study these things. Your area of specialization may define the tools that are in your kit that help you then help work some of these issues for the military. You know, I was just going to jump in and I'm having a lot of personal sort of reactions to this definition and the examples, Maurice, you give and good reactions. One of the things that's sort of striking me as you describe some of the different examples of how applied psychology works in the military is you're talking about these principles and these methods that are going to likely have quite a large impact on the organization. And going back to Eric's definition, I think, and the follow-on comment that Eric, you made about clinical psychologists is you do that as a clinical, you do these things as a clinical psychologist working with patients, but the impact typically is on that patient or whoever you meet with for that hour. And the work that we're, you know, applied psychologists do in, in research and making recommendations to leaders and organizational level sort of broader picture, I think is a way to get upstream of problems and as a way to get ahead of the times maybe for unique and novel things that that inevitably happen. And I think the impact can be much bigger, which is exciting, I think. And probably for students that might be listening, they might want to have a big impact in some way. So I think that kind of has a lot of energy behind it. So one of the things I'm a little bit envious of of clinicians is is you get to see the reactions of people firsthand to your involvement and the impact that you have in their lives. Right, right. You know, it's like you but you do make a really good point. It's like if you think about what your sphere of influence is, most clinicians work one person at a time. There are people on the research side who work teams at a time, platoon at a time, whole organizations at a time, right. the entire service at a time. You know, one of the things that the projects that I, again, I'll go back to it, that I'm the most proud of is the fact that we were able to, our research was used to change public policy in terms of how people are compensated for foreign language capability. And that impacted everybody in special operations who gets paid for foreign language and has gotten paid since then. And so that's a major influence. But, you know, I and I know some of those people who get that pay, but it's not something like I'm getting to see the impact of it in their lives because I just I just don't think about it that way. But it's something that you think about when you're a military psychologist. It's like, am I making a difference? And I think that in the military, it's easy to see the difference that you make regardless of the level, because there's a clear line of sight. You're not brought in to work on a problem 
you know, just to work on a problem. You're brought in to solve it and put something in place that's evidence or research-based to help people move forward or at least to try to do that. And I think some of the things that, you know, going back to the psychologist thing is we come at it with a certain perspective and a certain understanding of human behavior. Like, for example, when I go into a a training situation and they're having an issue, I have models in my head that are based off of 100 years of research plus my own research and experience on what what are the drivers or the influencers of learning? What are the different Mm -hmm. factors that contribute to this? And I'll, I'll give you an example you know, that's very much like the how I form an hypothesis and then we go out and we, we test it with data. Again, we had a back when we were sending during the operations in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, at the height of that, special forces training, the culminating component of that was language training. And they were having a very high, well, more than they would like percentage of trainees were not meeting the minimum standard to graduate from language training. And so what that meant was that these people who'd been in the long pipeline anyway were being held up from going to units that needed Mm -hmm. them to be deployed almost ASAP, right? So, Mm -hmm. and they were having to be recycled to go through the training again to do that. And so they brought us in to study it and they had they have very little data, but because of the way my understanding of learning and the metrics that they have, we were able to do some statistical analysis that pointed to some process issues that they could address. And, you know, that made a huge difference in getting people through the training the first time. So I think there's just so many different ways that we can use our knowledge and apply it as psychologists that other people even if they're working in, like, say, the training and development field, they don't have the same toolkit that we have. They have a different toolkit. Mm-hmm. And so I think we bring a lot of value to these situations, regardless of what our training is, just because of our perspective on human behavior. Yeah, one thing I'll add to that is, Eric, I was getting foreign language proficiency pay until your study, and then I stopped getting it. So now I know who to thank for that. So Maurice, does that mean, no, no, I want to investigate this because the changes that we did were, hey, you get pay at a lower level, you get paid for the OPI as opposed to the DOPT for soft if you're in a language code. Yeah. But, you know, those are the, our research no, recommended all that stuff. So I'm sorry if you... It had nothing to do with you. I, I'm sure <laughs> it did. I'm sure you just weren't in a language code and bill it anymore. <laughs> no, so the, the big thing was that the language that I was proficient in was no longer paid for. Uh, so. Ah, so it was no longer a critical language. Got it. Yeah, so it was no longer a critical language. So it had nothing to do with you, but I thought I'd poke fun <laughs> at you anyway. So a couple of things I wanted to share is, you know, that we have military psychologists that are kind of on the front edge of some pretty cool things that are relevant, I think, right now in the world and certainly in the Department of Defense. And so I'll just talk quickly about two of those. The first is that the Army is involved in this huge, huge revolution in the way we think about talent management and how uh, brigade commanders, battalion commanders, future leaders are selected for their positions, right? Mm -hmm. And so you've got both clinical and applied psychologists that are involved in the talent management task force that are essentially creating the way in which we're going to, to revolutionize how we select our best and our brightest to lead men and women in uniform. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one. Another one is this operation that was uh, formerly known as warp speed. With the change of administration now, it's, uh, it's no longer called Operation Warp Speed. We have uh, research psychologists who have spent their careers 
doing medical research in a variety of places that have focused on medical product development in what we call medical acquisitions. And so as program managers, their skill set is highly desirable, particularly when it comes to vaccine fielding and managing those sorts of programs. So you'll see that we have an entire group of people that are in uniform that are involved in that process, even though the work isn't all being done through the military, right? So these are two just probably areas that you wouldn't think of a military psychologist being involved in, but that's the beauty of it. There's just, it's so broad and the application is so wide and so important that they get to function at levels that are just absolutely amazing and astounding. And I love seeing where some of the folks that are in uniform as research psychologists, just to see how they're blossoming and doing just tremendous work across all services. It's inspiring, actually. Well, I think that's highlighting sort of the term that Eric used is solving real world problems. And those are real world problems that have massive impacts on the Department of Defense. And I don't know of a lot of other areas of focus where you can have such a big impact. I'm sure there are, you know, there's huge organizations out there that you could work for, but the Department of Defense is a huge one. So uh, it's kind of, kind of a cool place to have an impact. The largest employer psychologist probably in the world would be my wow. guess. Wow. I'm sure if you think about all the people who work under research grants and also contracts that are psychologists in the whole defense industrial complex, I'm sure it is if you count all that. So some of the things that I think would be fun to talk about are some of the places where some of these just tremendous laboratories exist mm-hmm. Yeah, in the Department of Defense. And I can obviously, I'll speak a little bit more fluently about the Army laboratories, but there are also Navy research laboratories and Air Force research laboratories that are important. So no matter what service you're thinking about joining as a student, there are potential opportunities for you across all uniformed services. Maybe the Marine Corps, maybe not. You probably do that through the Bureau of Medicine, through the Navy, and also through the VA. The Veterans Affairs has a ton of research and Mm -hmm. funding to support these things. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The first was Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Silver Spring, Maryland. They're co-located with the Naval Medical Research Center. They share the same building, same laboratory spaces, you know, on the same floor, that kind of thing, and sometimes collaborate on research projects. So there you've got people that study everything from infectious disease to traumatic brain injury, and then some of the work that I was describing, looking at soldier well-being, health and well-being in deployed and in garrison environments, right? So it's a pretty neat place. And one of the beautiful things about any of these organizations is if you are interested in pursuing you know, dabbling a little bit in some of the research that you might do in those environments, they've got opportunities and funding through a variety of different programs to get you in to do research. So if you're an undergrad that's transitioning to graduate school, you're not sure if you want to go clinical or if you want to go applied, that may be an opportunity for you to work in one of these settings to help make some of those decisions, right? So the Navy folks also study diving there. I think they study pressure, you know, diving pressure, that kind of thing. They study, again, traumatic brain injury, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Up the road, you have the Medical Research Institute of Chem Defense in Edgewood, Maryland. Their focus there for the research psychologists is more on the drug development side, medical countermeasures against bad things, bad chemical compounds that could kill or severely incapacitate our service members. If you continue up north, then you've got the United States Army Medical 
Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. And that's a really cool place. They do everything from nutrition research. They do fitness research. They look at altitude. They look at all kinds of things. It's a small research institute in Natick, Massachusetts. <laughs> where uh, those are the three primary ones that jump out. Then you've got the Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease, not a place that we typically have research psychologists, but you can certainly collaborate with biochemists and other folks who do research there. We've got over in Bethesda, there's some places, Uniform Services University, for example, where we have research psychologists yes. that are studying leadership and those sorts of things. So Keen, you may have met Angela Yarnell who's a research psychologist and doing great things at the Uniform Services University. We've got organizations out west at Joint Base Lewis-McChord that are also doing research on deployed environments and, and sort of human factors research there. The United States Army Aviation Research Laboratory down at Fort Rucker, they study a whole lot of things, everything from like just cognitive overload from having multiple displays, you know, those sorts of things, mm -hmm. but more aviation-related research. Out in San Diego, there's a Navy group out there that has this tremendous study called the Millennium Cohort Study. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so there's just, there's so many places to do research in the military. Air Force has a lab in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base mm -hmm. where they do a, a variety of research as well. Yeah, Human Performance Lab, yep. Yep, Human Performance Lab and a variety of other types of things. But those are just some examples of the different laboratories where some of this work can get done. I think the last time I checked across the services, I think there was something like 60 labs wow. where this kind of stuff can be done. And I would also, I, I just did a quick look at the consortium's fellows programs research or their webpage, and they currently are supporting the several organizations ARI. They're supporting the Navy Personal Research a Science and Technology Group and the 7-Eleven Human Performance Wing, Human Effectiveness Directorate, and the Air Force. So there are a lot of opportunities for graduate students to get involved and get funded on the applied side through those organizations as well. I know they used to have people who worked at Defense Manpower Data Center as well. I don't know if they still do or not, but you know, yes. just tremendous amounts of opportunities for funding. And, and one that we haven't mentioned that I'm more familiar with because I've worked on a couple of them is their SBIR, Small Business Innovative Research Grants. And every service, SOCOM, DARPA, a Missile Defense Agency, all these different places, they release these research requests for proposals, basically, through this program. And they're designed to develop research that can be commercialized. It solves problems that they have, but it also can be commercialized. And there's different phases of it. So think of like phase one as being exploratory. Phase two is really being more, can you get the concepts you know, ready for commercialization? And then there's commercialization after that. And oftentimes, there are human performance-related topics that are of interest to psychologists. And so if you're working in a small business or if you're entrepreneurially inclined, those are options for you. The, the NSF and also the Department of Education and other places has, uses the program as well. There are also the services also have these kind of I don't know what exactly what you would call them because they're not incubators, but they're sort of designed to kind of facilitate people solving problems, starting businesses, doing that. Like AFWorks is one of them, for example. They have several different programs, and there's actually some calls on one of their programs for things that are related to human performance 
So I think there are lots of opportunities for psychologists to put their skills to good use. Yeah. So no shortage in terms of pathways to become a military psychologist through this route. But in thinking as, as an audience member who, I don't know, undergrad, how do I, you know, I know this is down the road, there are a consortium, all these different research labs, but in between being an undergrad all the way to that point, what are some things that you think are skills or requirements that people should take care of? One of the things I'm going to start with is the first thing that I think either an undergrad or graduate student should erase from their mind is the idea to be a military psychologist, you need to be in uniform. Mm. Okay, that's the very first thing I think you should start with, because there are so many different ways to serve in a military psychology capacity, right? You can do it in uniform, you can do it as a Department of Defense civilian, you can do it as a university researcher getting funding through the military, you can do it through organizations like Army Research Institutes. They're just a ton of ways, right? So that's the first place that I would start is kind of just erasing that idea from your mind that the only way to do it is be in uniform. I find it very interesting that the Maurice is the one who said that and not Eric. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm a walking example of that. So he, he was just, although he did forget to, to talk about us, uh, us, us contractors who, who have our own businesses and, and work that way. But now I, I think the thing that I would encourage folks to do is find as you're selecting, if you're really interested in working, if you're an undergrad and you're interested in going on for a graduate degree in psychology and eventually working with the military in, in some capacity, Focus on graduate programs that have connections to the military mm-hmm. or professors who do a lot of research with the military, have a lot of grants, because those are the folks who are going to have the already have the connections. They're going to have the cultural insights. They can help you. They've mm-hmm. got research programs where you can get real experience. You know, if you think about you look at a like, for example, the University of South Florida does a lot of research with Stephen uh, Stark down there, does a lot of research with ARI, for example. The University of Central Florida over in Orlando does a tremendous amount of research with all different service branches. And there's there's tons of defense research organizations that have offices and sites on their enterprise campus down there. You know, so I think there's just opportunities there. Look at universities up in the D.C. area that do a lot of work with DOD. So I would just think about it. Hey, look, if you're in this area and this person is doing area of psychology and there's a person who's doing research that you want to do, I mean, use that as part of your selection process. And then the other thing I would say is do as much as you can to get experience. There are always folks who are looking for interns to work on projects whether they're paid or unpaid, you know, I just basically had, I've got, had a really good relationship with some of our sponsors who've, you know, allow us to use data for research and other purposes, as long as we go about it the appropriate way and get the appropriate permissions. But I oftentimes reach out to university professors and their students to help on these projects. I just had a, a student at ODU just signed a data usage agreement because one of the, her professor is working with me on a project and he wanted to give her some experience doing that. And so I said, yeah, that's great. And so I think there are opportunities to get involved, volunteer, get great experience regardless of what you're doing. So I just would take advantage of everything that you can to do that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would add to what Eric added is the idea that you need to focus in on an area that interests you, do as best you possibly can to excel in that. 
get as much practical experience as you can through those internships or, or whatever other opportunities come your way. And then once you've kind of honed that piece in and dialed that in and done everything you can to be the best candidate you can, then you start looking at who can I reach out to within the military psychology division 19 network, for example, to say, hey, who can you hook me up to? And don't be afraid to ask. I can't tell you how many students I've had reach out to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm interested in military psych and you know, I want to do research and this, that, and the other. And first thing I have to tell them is pump the brakes a little bit. Let's kind of talk about what you're interested in a little bit so that I can try to help you navigate where you're going and potentially connect you with people that might be able to help. A lot of folks are afraid to ask mm -hmm. for that help. I'm still going to encourage you to hop on the web and type in a couple of key terms in either Google Scholar or in Google just general to find out who might be doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking to choose a school, I think it's, it's very important to look at who's doing that kind of work and then try to align yourself and connect yourself with them. And I don't think that's any different than advice I would give to a graduate student you know, a student who's looking, undergraduate, who's looking to go to grad school mm -hmm. in terms of what they're interested in, find out who's doing the work you like, and then pursue a relationship with them. And many times students forget to look at the institution they're in. Mm -hmm. There are many folks that may be at the university or college that you're at that are doing work with the military that could be informative. I 100% agree with that. And the other thing that I would add to that is take opportunities to network. And take easy opportunities to get your work out in front of folks that could be influential to your career. So just a couple of thoughts on that. For example, posters. Posters are great ways. They're low bar to entry typically at most conferences, but they're a great way for a new researcher to get their work out there and to be able to talk about it with you know, their peers, other students, or and to talk about it with people that they potentially want to meet who come by who are interested in that, that topic area. I always make an effort to go to poster sessions that I'm interested in because I want to see what other people are doing, but I also want to talk to students because it's, you know, for me, it's potentially a recruiting thing to look for potential employees. I, over the years, I've gotten several folks, interns and other folks, contractors, employees out of doing that. So I think you just never know what these conversations are. The other thing coming up, we actually have, if you're a research psychologist and you're focused more in the personnel domain and organizational domain, we have, we're hosting the 62nd International Military Testing Association Conference, which the organization was started in the United States, but it's since become international and it's headquartered out of Belgium. But it's an opportunity for military researchers who focus on assessment and testing in their work. So think about, you know, typically mostly personnel, but some other areas as well. So think about selection and assignment. Think about training and development. Think about compensation promotion. Think about other things where you would use assessment. And they typically have about 32 countries represented. And so we're hosting it in the United States this year, fingers are crossed, obviously, as I'm saying this, <laughs> but we hope that we will be able to do it the last week in October and it's in Raleigh, North Carolina. So if you're interested in those types of research areas and meeting folks, not just from the United States, but internationally, then I think that's a great opportunity to do it. And I will, I'll tell a personal story about how putting yourself out there can make a huge difference in your career. So right when I was 
finishing up. My dissertation, as I mentioned before, was on modeling training performance. Well, there's a really influential article that was in the Journal of Applied Psychology in 93 about criteria for training programs. And it was written by uh, Kurt Krager, Kevin Ford, and Eduardo Salas. Ed Salas is actually a, a fellow of Division 19. But, you know, I went and introduced myself to all of them when, at, at whatever point I could find them when they were speaking at a conference. Ed was incredibly generous with his time. And when he used to be at the University of Central Florida and I would go to, to SOCOM in Tampa, I'd drive over and, and talk to him about stuff. And he was a great informal mentor for me. I've subsequently, Kirk Krager has become a, a mentor to me over the years of my career. And I've done work with him. And he and I actually developed a model of training evaluation the alignment and impact model that we're doing. And we've worked together on a number of things. And I've actually published with Kevin Ford an article on a dynamic training transfer model. And, you know, have actually, he's the discuss it on a PSYOP symposium that we're doing this year. So, you know, you just never know. Just And all that came by me just showing up and saying, hi, I'm Eric Surface. I'm studying training. And I re- your work has been really, you know, meaningful to mine. And, you know, I'd like to get to know you and hear your thoughts on other things or whatever, you know, that, and I think people who are who are truly good or great are also tend to be very generous with their time. So I, I've mm-hmm. when I've asked folks to talk or to do that, you know, they may not have been able to do it right then, but they've never said no, right? Mm-hmm. They've always figured out a way a way to do it. And I think it's just part of what you do is you give back because all, all of us are where we're at because of other people. We yeah. we get help along the way. We all do, and so. Don't be afraid to ask for it. I think what Maurice said earlier is 100% all. And be patient, right? That's the second part to what Eric just said is be patient because a lot of these folks are extremely busy and they may not see your email message right away or, or it may get buried for a little bit, but they'll find it again. And if they don't, then be persistent. If you don't hear from them in, in, a, in a few months, then send them another note. Don't just write them off saying that they don't care, they're not interested. Mm-hmm. The tyranny of their inbox got, you know, took over and they just need to see it again. Or there are three inboxes. And oh, by the <laughs> way, you're trying to give me another inbox, Mr. President. <laughs> oh, oh man. Well, I, you know, Eric, I think your personal story, I think I'm reflecting on this conversation that we're having. You know, I think you both are examples of people who are great and doing amazing work. And here you are giving back to students and providing mentorship for who knows how many people to pursue this type of work and to encourage them to not be shy and to reach out to people like yourselves for mentorship and guidance. And you all are the experts, at least in my eyes, uh, for, for this type of work. So we very much appreciate that perspective and are so happy to be providing this information to students. Well, one of the things that I was I was hoping to talk a little bit more about, shift the conversation a little bit, Eric, you had given us some really nice real-world examples of work that you have done. And that perspective of not being a uniformed psychologist, I thought was very powerful and is a good peek for students into, into how they can practice in that domain. Maurice, I, I kind of wanted to pose this question to you. You had described how you were in theater environments and deployed settings and doing this work with command and with leaders, improving 
solving real world problems in those environments. And I'm wondering if you can provide some more specific examples of what you had done there and, you know, shed light to what that might look like for the folks that are in uniform. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, there are a couple of different examples, you know, that I could talk to. The first one was when, and I don't know if you'll hear this, but now Colonel retired Carl Castro back in, I guess it was 2010 timeframe said, hey, how do you like Germany? I'm like, yeah, I grew up there. Good. You're going, right? So that's how I got invited to go to Afghanistan was by this appointment to this job. And so the mental health advisory team missions is something that the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research typically will do these sorts of missions. Sometimes they're going to be in a combat zone. Sometimes they're not. Well, this one happened to be. So it was a team of, I think there were eight of us, included a couple enlisted soldiers who were behavioral health techs, but also research assistants that were going to help us process data. We had a social worker from the Air Force. We had a actually a, a person who was a reserve captain, but worked at the National Institutes of Mental Health. And then we had a Navy, I want to say he was also a Navy social worker, and then a team of Army folks. And so our goal was to go into theater. We spent about three and a half months in Afghanistan going all over the theater interviewing soldiers, doing focus groups with them, looking at issues that were arising, looking, running surveys, studying their perspectives of their leadership, their combat experiences, how long they've been in the service, you know, all the demographics that you would consider. We included a bunch of instruments looking at behavioral health measures and sleep and a variety of other things that allowed us to get a sense of what was going on in theater. We processed all that data generated a hundred and some page report that before we left theater, we went to the leadership at the different levels uh, in Afghanistan and basically said, hey, this is what's going on in in theater based on the findings of our study. And here are the recommendations we're going to take back to the chief of staff of the army in terms of of improving service members' experiences over here, some of the things that we think could happen, you know, so including where behavioral health assets were positioned the numbers that were there. So you're looking at provider to patient ratios and those sorts of things. We also looked at traumatic brain injuries, concussions, you know, those sorts of things. So it's a large, broad, encompassing sort of survey. So that one is one of the ones that was routinely happening while we were actively engaged in Afghanistan. There was one that happened a couple years later, and then briefing those results, we came back, and then the chief of staff of the Army said, you guys got to go back. You got 30 days to get back in theater. And so that's the one I led. We had 30 days to get ourselves, get a survey design, get everything, get a team built together, and then get back into Afghanistan. And then on the back end of that, he said, you have 30 days upon putting your feet back on U.S. soil to be back in my office telling me what happened, right? So some of those are very high profile sorts of engagements. Others are maybe less, less exciting from you know, that perspective, we have other organizations that come to us and say, hey, we have a concern about X, Y, or Z. This is what we think is going on, but we're not really sure. Can you guys come help us? And so typically what we'll do is we'll send a small team down to the unit, to the organization, and do sort of a focus group with leadership, maybe some smaller focus groups with some of the soldiers that are there and get a sense of what sorts of issues they may be facing, come back, design the measure that we want to look at, 
administer it, process the data, gather as much information as we can, analyze it, and then bin it into actionable recommendations for that organization. And so those are typically done in units that are about to deploy, are redeploying, or we'll have senior leaders that say, hey, you know, typically we do, this is the process we follow. We're thinking about changing that. We don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea. And then we say, hey, this is sort of a naturally occurring experiment. We can look at that for you and make the, you know, give you some feedback in terms of how your organization fared compared to an organization that did it, you know, the other way. Sometimes we have leaders that say, hey, what happens if we increase the number of, you know, that everybody has to have an interview upon redeploying with a behavioral health provider? Okay, Mm -hmm. so we'll do a study that'll look at, well, those that had an interview with a behavioral health provider versus just a, a general practitioner and see if there are any differences in terms of what they, you know, the outcomes, long term outcomes when we follow up with them. Other studies we've been asked to do is, hey, we can't do face-to-face, we've got to do virtual. So then we look at telehealth and whether or not there are differences, whether people have an in-person or a face-to-face and they get a choice in, in doing those sorts of things. So that's kind of how I think it has worked for us in uniform a lot of times is the organization gets asked a question that then we use the tools in our toolkit to try to help leaders answer. And in some cases, that ends up translating into policy. So when you think of deployment to dwell times and things along those lines, those policies were impacted by some of the research that some of these mental health advisory team missions did. I think there have been nine of them total since I think 2000, I want to say 2001 or two or three was the first one. So over a decade, there were about nine or 10 of nine of them that happened. But I don't know if that kind of answers your question, Ethan. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things that stood out to me as you were sharing some of those examples was there was a lot of clinical implication and and aspects to that as well. And it sounds like some of the real world problems that you were tasked at solving related very much to human behavior and their mental health. You referenced TBI. Yeah, I'm sure sleep comes up a lot, you know, various health related things. Absolutely. Ethan, we were in one of our missions, we were asked to look at professional burnout in clinicians who are providing behavioral health care to, you know, to service members in a combat zone. So we're not necessarily clinicians, but we have the tools to help address questions like that, you know, Mm -hmm. regarding professional burnout in those sorts of environments. And those teams are collaborative, right? So, you know, we have clinicians on the team that'll say, hey, these are the gold standard assays that you're going to you're gonna want to include. So that's the fun part of it is that it's so collaborative and you learn from each other in some pretty cool ways. It makes it fun. And, and that's how we do it. When you're doing that kind of work, my assumption to the answer to this question is going to be no. But do you get to publish that information yes. and that data that you collect? Absolutely. I imagine that'd be very valuable information to have. The biggest limitation to publishing, I think, just to jump in, is that is the time to do it. I mean, you know, one of the things that I found is is that the military, as long as you follow the rules and you get the permissions, are very supportive of publishing. And so I think that's one of the benefits of actually, if you're a researcher working with the military. Now, there's some areas where you can't because the rules just don't allow it. But in the areas that I work in, I've been very fortunate that I've, I've had those collaborations. 
And in in the world that I've been in, absolutely are encouraged to publish. In fact, one of the things that we talk about with the leaders of some of the organizations that we're working with is we we tell them, look, that's one of the things we want to be able to do with the data is also to, you know, have it published in a peer-reviewed journal so that it can benefit service members in a broader, you know, broader way because other people can then read and learn about it and then apply some of those things to their own cases. So we don't publish everything, but we also try to design our surveys so that we get the most bang for the buck that we can because you know everybody and their uncle wants to talk to service members and work with service members and so there's some protection of their time and energy and justifiably so and so if we're going to end up having somebody do you know fill out one of these surveys we're going to want to be as a efficient as we can and include as many things that are going to allow us to tease out some of the complicated relationships that they're dealing with in the environments that they happen to be in. Mm -hmm. I imagine some of that research that you might do at times might result in some unpopular answers. I wonder if, if either of you have experiences of providing some recommendations to leaders or organizations that have not been well recepted. I'll give you an example of, of one of the studies and one of the pieces of advice that we were sharing with some senior leaders. It was right around the beginning of the performance triad timeframe. And it was when General Horaho was talking about the performance triad. You know, so we went into theater. Of course, sleep was one of the things that we measure in theater. And we were finding some areas that just were begging us to talk about sleep. And in particular, one of the things that we looked at was the behavior of leaders sort of demonstrating and modeling what good sleep looks like, you know, in terms of the hours of sleep they're getting and the types of things that they're doing and the relationship then in how many hours of sleep that their soldiers were getting. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of the recommendations that we're coming up with were very much focused on sleep hygiene and some of the things that leaders should be doing to ensure that their folks are getting the type of sleep that they should. And one of the senior leaders looked at me and said, he called her by her first name, but General Horaho put you up to this, didn't she? And I was like, no, actually, she did not put me up to this. But it's the idea that Army culture is just, you know, it's changing now. Yeah. But Army culture was really, I'm going to sleep when I'm dead. I've got plenty of time to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm just as effective. I don't need to sleep. And I'm probably preaching to the choir here in terms of the audience that understands the importance of sleep in terms of maintaining health and wellness and executive function. Mm -hmm. But that's just one example where the culture sometimes fights back against the science that you have to then be able to translate and communicate in a way that the senior leaders can hear it so that they can inform the policies and, and make the changes that will help drive and embed these things into culture. Yeah. So I want to elaborate on my comment a, a little bit. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Although, because I, I think that there's a, Maurice is right. Sometimes you're delivering a message that, that people don't want to hear or that's mm -hmm. against the cultural norm. Sometimes, though, there's also this, this idea, if you're in command, you're thinking about your next command, right? And so this particular commanding officer, and I, I'm not going to get into ranks because I don't want to place it, but asked us to come in and take a, a diagnostic look at this particular training program that was one of his two marquee programs that he was pushing as that particular organization's commander. Mm -hmm. And we did a very thorough analysis and we did the briefing to him and the, to his person who was in charge of that program. And there were a lot of areas for improvement and we laid them all out. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, and 
So I'm 6'2", and this guy, I had to look up to him. So it tells you how <laughs> tall he was. And he comes up to me at the end, shakes my hand, says, thank you for this. It's a lot of good information, and we're going to use it to make the program better. But if you ever tell anybody what's in this report, I would kill you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and last time I checked, that guy has two stars. So I'm not going to say, ever say anything about what's in that report. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing that's really kind of fun with some of this is that sometimes the media will grab onto, you know, one of the findings and then want to talk about the implications of those results. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I think research psychologists often end up dealing with is potentially having to talk to media about some findings that may not be popular with the service that they're, you know, they're a part of. And so that's an additional you know, an additional challenge. And so if you go back and you look at some of the old headlines associated with a variety of military psych research, you'll find that there are some members, longstanding members of, of the division who have had, had that opportunity to talk to the press. Mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to kind of to change the subject a little bit to go back to something Maurice said in his yeah. comments that made me think about something. So One of the things that Maurice talked about was a lot of use of focus groups in his research projects. And it made me think about how much I've used focus groups in the research that we do. And it's one of those common areas, interviews, focus group surveys are methods that most psychologists get some exposure to in in terms of how to do. But if you think about it as, as clinicians or folks who are researching in the clinical area, if you ever wanted to switch and do you know do projects in other areas one of the things that your skill set is good for is to do the interviews and to do the focus groups that collect the information i've literally probably done over 100 or more i can't even can't even count the number of focus groups that i've done i've gotten to go do focus groups all over socom across four services we even did one project where we traveled around the world giving focus groups in 17 days. So I've circumnavigated the globe in 17 days, but it's uh, that was crazy. Talking about sleep disruption, I didn't get normal for, for two weeks after getting home from that. But I think the point is that you've got a skill set as psychologists that translate to a lot of different investigating and solving a lot of different problems or problems in a lot of different areas or issues in a lot of different areas. And so I would encourage folks to focus, like Maurice kind of said earlier, is focus on becoming the best you can in your area, but also your skills, those those generally applicable skills. You know, when you think about it, there's the use of assessments, there's surveying, there's interviewing, there's doing focus groups. And let me tell you, there are bad ways to do all of those things, mm-hmm. right? And just because you're a psychologist, I've seen psychologists fail at all those things, but I've also, you know, but I've seen lots of other people try to do them who don't have our training and do even worse, right? So I think the, the thing is focus on those really good at those skills, statistical analysis, another important skill, you know, understanding measurement that are kind of foundational skills, just like, you know, different areas, you know, for me, understanding human learning is foundational to the work that I do, but also understanding social psychology is foundational to the work that I do, Mm -hmm. how those two things interact. So, you know, individual differences, psychology is foundational. So focus on the areas of your skill set or your skill set And if you want to switch, if you're a clinician and you say, hey, I'd like to do some research or I'd like to work on a different type of applied project, that's your entry point, I think, is to focus on the skills that are transferable. Yeah. And one of 
in my very short experience with the Air Force, one of the ways I think as a clinician, you're encouraged to do that when you're interacting with leaders or a commander comes to you and has a specific question, you relate your opinion, your work, your ideas or recommendations to a readiness of the force. And, you know, how is what I am going to provide you? How are these recommendations? How are these focus groups or surveys going to in turn make an impact on mission readiness? And I think that is just well accepted by by most leaders and, and most people who have real world problems that they're facing and trying to solve themselves. So I think that's, yeah, that's absolutely another that's another sort of group that we're trying to capture is the folks that we are... Don't, we don't collect data for the sake of collecting data. We collect data for the sake of answering questions and providing yeah. solutions. And yeah, then, the, big, the big thing that I think is you have to think about that, that's critical in all of that is you can collect all the data you want, but if you can't translate it into the language that the commanders can understand and appreciate in terms of readiness and then the other things that are important to leading a national security enterprise, then you fail. Yeah, You absolutely have to be able to speak the language in the type of uh, terms that our leaders can understand. And that's probably where I think I've seen a lot of folks who don't have the military psychology connection struggle because mm-hmm. they come in, they get enamored with all their data. They want to show a thousand pictures of the data and what it <laughs> means, and they can't, they can't boil it down to the so what then their feelings get hurt because you didn't like their baby pictures. Mm-hmm. You know? um, it's not about the baby. It's really about you know, communicating why it matters to the population that you're interacting with. So I think you hit on a key thing, Ethan, in terms of being able to speak the language and tie it back to what the commanders care about. So in your case, it was readiness, right? Yeah. And I think there's also the idea of the individual you know, speaking the language, but also being able to read the room and understanding who the individuals are. Because I worked, when I was with ARI, I got to did the the climate survey at uh, USASOC, I think three or four different times was involved in it. And each CG was very different in terms of what they wanted. It's like General Tagney was just tell me what I need to work on and tell me what my recommendations are and let's go. And, you know, General Brown was, we spent an entire afternoon with him going through the results of every facet of the command climate survey and talking about it. I mean, he would step out to go take a call and come back in, but we were, we were there the whole entire afternoon going through all that stuff because he wanted to know it so he could figure out, you know, what are my areas that I want to focus on? So very different types of engagement levels, but both effective because it fit who they were and they were both problem focused in terms of the problems that they needed to solve. It's just a different way that they wanted to engage with the data. Yeah. And they're going to have various amounts of time. And you may be going in thinking you have a 30 minute chunk of time and you need to be prepared that they might have two minutes, you know, because that phone call may come in or some event is going to happen in the world that just changes the priority that suddenly your 30 minutes isn't isn't as important anymore. Or, so. or you get scheduled there, you're in the waiting room and they say, hey, you got to come back tomorrow. Yeah. You know, or in the case with General Brown, he asked us to stay around because as he had to step out for other stuff and you're not going to say no to the <laughs> to the CG use of sock. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So you're going to stay as long as you have to stay. Absolutely. You know, I'm just being mindful of the time. 
I'm wondering if you all could briefly speak, each of you, to what is next for you? What are you currently working on that's exciting and, and you're really you know amped up about? And then what are the next steps for your organizations or for your career? Boy, tough question for the end, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So for me, uh, I'll start. You know, I took a little bit of a turn in my career when I came to the Army War College. And what really kind of excites me and amps me up is my engagement with senior, I won't even say senior Army because it's a joint school, but senior members of the national security community to include civilians and members from the international community, our partners and allies who, who come to the Army War College as well. But it's to engage with them on a daily basis on topics such as strategic leadership and defense resource management, which I I think of as sort of an application of strategic leadership. And so, you know, certainly my training as a psychologist helps me bring, I think, some of the concepts that we teach to life. In terms of research, one of the things that I'm looking at right now is the concept of moral courage. And that's the idea that you have the courage to speak to your subordinates, your peers, and your your superiors about things that may be problematic in an organization. And so it's probably not surprising to you that there are going to be some topics that are going to be a little harder for you to talk about with your boss than it might be to a subordinate. But that's one of the areas that I'm looking at right now. The project that I'm working on right now with one of my colleagues is a strategy research project with our students. We have eight students that are writing about health and well-being in midlife. And so when you think about leaders at this point in their careers, they're very busy, very successful folks, but they sometimes need to focus a little bit on what it means to them to do things like balance between work and life, the family life, those sorts of things, diet, fitness, uh, sleep mindfulness, you know, all of these things. So we're putting together a project to hopefully result in a book that we can use to teach future students that come through the War College. So hopefully I'll stick around here for a while. I I really enjoy teaching and I also hope to stick around the division for a little bit longer as well and and be engaged in, in helping develop I think future leaders within our own organization. I think both of you know that I've I've been very focused in my involvement in the divisions since the beginning in helping advance student representation as well as leadership opportunities for students within the division itself because I think it's important to set the foundation now so that people like you who have experienced the Division 19 mid-year meetings and all those sorts of things in 10 years, five years, however long it takes, when you're in those leadership positions, Mm -hmm. you'll understand why you're inheriting the division in the condition it's in based on the decisions that Eric made. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Although I, in my defense, I had a tough year because of COVID and lots of other things. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Absolutely. Eric, do you mind sharing what are you excited about and uh, what's next for you and your company? So before I do that, I want to talk about what I'm excited about for next for Division 19. And there are two things that I'm really excited about. I alluded to one of them before is that we're hosting IMTA and I'm the court, you know, coordinating that. And that's in the last week in October. So if you're listening to this now, there will probably be a call for papers coming out very soon. And so if you've got something to contribute, please consider submitting your proposal. Mm-hmm. 
Second thing that I'm excited about is that we just approved the XCOM. We just voted on and approved the creation of a, a military psychology foundation. And that was one of my, I set up a, a task force to study that and make a recommendation last year. That was actually something that I campaigned on several times for when I was running for Division 19 president. And that was just voted on and put into place. So I'm very excited about that. And I think that is a, a great mechanism for us, not just to raise money, but to also to raise the visibility and support a lot of the programs that are important to us at Division 19 and to our members. And I think it sets us on a good foundation for the future. So, so you know, where I probably will try to focus my efforts in supporting the division in the future will be working with the foundation to help the foundation raise money and do other things like that. So I'm really excited about that. Professionally, I was doing applied research and consulting for a while, but then I saw that with all these interventions that we were doing around data, that if you got the right data to the right people at the right times, they could make decisions and do things that had a great opportunity to impact you know, both the learning process, learning, and, it, and its impact on other organizational variables like performance and things like that. And so I got really interested in this idea of how can you eliminate the barriers to do that? Because oftentimes the data is not collected in a way that's easily distributable. It's not integrated from different sources. It doesn't get to the right people fast enough. And so we started developing the software platform. We had always had an online feedback tool that was kind of static around some of the survey work that we were doing, but we decided to build a very comprehensive platform. And so that it can involve surveys, observations, assessments, bringing that data together and even data from the workplace or you know mission data, whatever you want to do to kind of help with these analytics and get it to the right people who can act on it to make a difference. It's just like, you know, we found through some of our research that instructors were, you know, explained a lot of variance in learning outcomes. And so, you know, we started doing that early in training and then we started collecting data on instructor performance. And then you could actually, you know, work on developing those instructors to improve outcomes while it was still relevant for the learners. So this is the, the kind of the big culmination. So that's what I'm really excited about is continuing to develop this and get it out into more organizations and work with that from a research side standpoint. I've got a lot of projects from, and I kind of alluded to this, the, the biggest limitation on research is time. And so I'm working on getting a lot of the projects that we've done over the past years published to include the one I just alluded to about instructor effectiveness. We literally found, and I'll, I'll just be geeky here for a second, that the instructor that you're assigned in language training for special forces, they not only have a significant impact on your immediate learning, you know, in the course, but that's persistent. So if you think about language, the way that we measure that skill is you train in it and then you test via standardized tests and then you have to test annually because you were trained by the government to continue to maintain readiness through the test and also get paid. And so, you know, we have all this data that goes out. So we looked at, at the impact of the instructor and it persists for years, not only does it persist for the first score and then the first score after that, but it can persist for years. The trajectory of your proficiency, hugely impacted by the instructor. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to look at, 
you know, the interventions that we put in place to increase instructor performance that, you know, then, you know, kind of standardized that impact or decreased it actually, because everybody was doing better, the instructors were doing better. Mm-hmm. The skill-based paper, we published a paper on the effectiveness of skill-based pay in the Journal of Management back in 2007-8, and now we've got that follow-up study that we're going to do, and and I'm also working on a a follow-up to our transfer model paper to talk about how you operationalize kind of the measurement of that. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of kind of things that I've got in the, in the fire, I, I feel good if I'm pushing everything a little bit forward. <laughs> I, I think that's the problem of being about a boundary spanner. And I think, you know, I, I'm sometimes envious of people who only focus on practice or only mm-hmm. focus on research, don't have to run a business mm-hmm. because I, I have to put a foot in all of these things and I, I run out of feet. So, <laughs> well, Exciting work that each of you are working on and, and continue to you know move the ticker forward in these fields and in the domain of applied psychology. I think this conversation is just scratching the surface as to what applied industrial organizational psychology looks like and what it looks like with military service members, veterans, and family members. So Our hope with this podcast episode is this gets people curious and this gets Mm -hmm. students interested and it serves as a launching point for follow-up conversations that we will have on this show for hopefully, who knows, years to come. So, you know, to each of you, I think this introduction to applied psychology has just been fun and engaging and very eye-opening for myself even. And that's exciting for me because I've always had an interest to learn more about this and will likely probably fuel some energy that I have toward this throughout my military career. So this is very exciting for me and and probably similar for other students who might be listening. For those listeners who might be interested in pursuing this kind of work, I would encourage you to engage with Division 19 in some of the ways that Dr. Surface and Dr. Sipos talked about today. But additionally, the Student Affairs Committee within Division 19 has a couple of processes set in place for you to get involved as a student. First and foremost, we have a pretty robust campus chapter network of students that have an interest in military psychology. And if your university does not, I would sort of have a a call to action for you to think about standing one up and starting that at your university. And if you don't have the energy to do that right now, maybe consider engaging in the local campus chapters at other universities that are close by. There are many throughout the country and we're excited for that to grow, specifically excited for that to grow in the applied domains. And we're hopeful through one of our recent initiatives to engage more applied psychology students and industrial organization programs, particularly through one of the funding opportunities that we have offering to students called the Student Initiative Fund. So if you're a student and you are you know, conducting research or hoping to set up a program of some kind or have an opportunity to you know, pursue working with a local organization to engage in some of this work, We want to be a support to that, and we want to fuel some of those energies that students have. So please navigate to the Student Affairs Committee website or the Division 19 website to get engaged with the Student Affairs Committee to look into those funding opportunities, because we want to be a resource for students in this domain to produce things for the field. 
Before we close, I just want to ask our speakers, do you all have anything else that you'd like to add or something today that we haven't talked about that is of interest to you to plug? Well, for me, I think the big thing that I want to plug is the idea of expanding our ability as a division to represent the breadth and diversity of military psychology. And I, and I thank you, Keen and Ethan, for doing this because it gives us an opportunity to do that. We often talk about diversity, inclusion, equity, and inclusion in a way that doesn't always reflect the functional side as well. I mean, it's important to talk about the demographic aspects of it, certainly, but it's also important to talk about sort of the functional pieces of it when we think about military psychology. Paul Bartone reminded me that years ago, the division focused very heavily on applied psychology. And the pendulum has swung now where the emphasis is a bit more on the clinical side, but at some point it'll start to potentially swing back and forth. And so the whole point, I think, is to find a place where we're comfortable of having both the clinical and the non-clinical sides of military psychology represented by an organization that can take care of the needs of all of our members. And that's certainly something that Eric has done in, in the past, and I will continue to do, is talk to APA about the need to not only focus on the clinical side, but to focus on the non-clinical side as we go forward. So that's the one thing that I, I don't think we plug that I, I wanted to plug. And the, the, the other piece of it is I, I just want to thank you both for the, the great work that you all are doing and the SAC is doing in improving the quality of experiences for our, our students that are studying military psychology. And I just look forward to seeing how you continue to develop it and how your successors will continue to develop it and feed into the future of our division because you all are the future of our division. Well, Maurice, I want to just say you stole everything that I was going to say. So, <laughs> not surprising, Eric. We always uh, we always seem to do that to each other. No, I, I know, but that's the reason why I, you know, you're you're such a great president is because you think a lot like I do. So you're, you're good. <laughs> the, but all, all seriousness, I, I think the you know first of all, I want to thank both of you because I think this project, this podcast, is a tremendous asset to our division and in particular our student members and. I just want to support everything that Maurice just said. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is that Division 19 is sort of a microcosm of psychology because we have folks that practice or research or advocate or educate in all just about every different subdiscipline of psychology. So if you think of the larger APA that's made up of you know, how many divisions there are in state associations and, and other interest groups, you know, most of them are focused in one way or the other in a, in a way that's they're either focused on a subdiscipline or they're all doing research or they're all doing, you know, we're not. So we have, a, I think, a, a greater challenge in terms of representing our membership. But I think in a lot of ways we do a better job in terms of having a cohesive membership than APA does as they claim to represent all of all of psychology. So, you know, 100% want to continue to do that. And, and we have a big tent here. We'd like, there's room for all folks in psychology to get under our tent. And so I, I think what you're doing here with the podcast is helpful. What you're doing in the student organization is helpful. And, I, and I'll say this again, I've said this many times. I've been, you know, this is my second time on the XCOM. I was on the XCOM previously for three years secretary, and then I was off for a couple of years. But I've had the privilege of working with 
you know, amazing student representatives on the Student Affairs Committee, all the way going back to David Berry. And I'm constantly impressed by what our students do and what they contribute to the organization. And, you know, I've always been a big supporter of students being able to have a voice and voting and participating in what we do. And, you know, you all have taken the empowerment that we've given you and just run with it. And, you know, I think it's just awesome to see what you all do. So thank you so much for what you do. And everybody listening, if you're a student and you think you can contribute, then talk to one of these these guys or somebody in this in, at your campus chapter. Get involved because mm-hmm. I think there's a clear path. And if you think about what Maurice said a minute ago, he's very passionate about our society leadership program mm-hmm. as he was one of the people who co-founded it. He's been involved in that. So think about your ideas coming in as a student you know, benefiting from these resources, volunteering some, then, you know, apply to the society leadership program, develop some skills, then come back, run for office. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, being interviewed on a podcast by, you know, the future (laughs) students, right? Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I don't take your comments and appreciations lightly. I mean, it means a lot. What you each have done, I think, for students I'm thankful for the opportunities that have that have come my way. And it's no coincidence that I've gotten to this point. There are just countless opportunities within Division 19 to engage, get involved, find a mentor, find some funding to do something cool like a podcast. So that is all coming off of the heels of your work and the people who have come before you. So thank you to all the efforts that you have put forward for students. Keen, any last thoughts, any last words before we wrap up today? Plenty, but I'll, I'll just <laughs> stick with a, a quick summary of you know, what we talked about today. So hopefully the audience today learn something about applied psychology. You know, we kind of dispel some of the myths and misconceptions about applied psychology, learn more about military psychology. Glad to you know, hear personal perspective from both our speakers today, which are you know, wonderful. Lots of resources. You know, we talked about places where you can do research and recommendation tips and things that you can do between now and when you've actually become a military psychologist and lots of wisdom, you know, definitely lots of wisdom. So really appreciate both our speakers today. Wonderful time spent here. And we look forward to you know, our artists join us in the future. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that each of you are probably going to be a guest on a future podcast where we get maybe more specifically into a very niche part of your work or we explore an avenue of applied psychology. Well, on that note, Dr. Surface and Dr. Sipos, thank you for your contributions to Military Psychology Division 19 and specifically to students who are interested in pursuing this kind of work. We look forward to having you back potentially in the future and want to wish you all the best of luck in your endeavors, research, and in your practice. So students listening, uh, appreciate you sticking around with us. And we look forward to you joining us on our next episode of the Intro to Military Psych podcast. Take care, everybody. We thank you for your time for listening to our episode. We hope this has been beneficial and educational, and we would love to hear from you. Any questions, any suggestions, any feedback, you can send that to our email at div19studentrep at gmail.com. And that is div19studentrep, as in R-E-P, at gmail.com. For more information about our guest speakers and ways to reach out to them, please check our podcast description. 
And we do have other ways to reach out to us via social media. And Ethan has those information. And Ethan? Yeah, so feel free to engage further with us on our social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter. You can search at Division 19 Students to find us on both of those platforms. We thank you for your engagement and listening to our podcast, and we look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.